evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Our on-the-ground reporter in Ukraine speaks with the mayor of a city in western Ukraine that has become a home for refugees. He gives us the latest updates on how they're surviving the war. Lawmakers from both sides of the aisle are saying the U.S. needs to be more energy independent. But how? We bring you the latest debate on Capitol Hill. Colorado lawmakers pass an abortion rights bill debated for over 24 hours. It would codify nearly unrestricted access to abortions. Democrats are doing this ahead of what could be a landmark Supreme Court ruling. Three violent criminals in three different cities along the East Coast all were caught by law enforcement this week. One of them is an alleged serial killer targeting homeless people. Amazon relocates workers out of its office in crime-ridden downtown Seattle due to a spike in violent crimes. The company is not the only one to flee the area over safety concerns. Amazon says employees won't be back until it is safe. A town in western Ukraine has become home for many refugees. The population has more than doubled over the past few weeks. NTD's reporter Dan Skorbak is on the ground in Ukraine and spoke to the mayor of that town. This is Truskavets, a Ukrainian city next to the Polish border. It's famous for its mineral springs and considered one of Ukraine's greatest resort cities. Our city is in western Ukraine. 70 kilometers from Lviv and about the same distance to the border with Poland. It has almost 200 years of history of being a resort. It used to be a territory of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, then Poland, then the Soviet Union, and now since 1991 it's Ukraine. The main health-improving method we offer here is our mineral waters, which could be consumed internally as well as spa treatments. This water has been proven to be very effective in treating health conditions related to urology, gastrointestinal tract, and more. The mayor told us that before the war, some 20,000 Ukrainians lived in the city. But after the war began, about 50,000 people reside in Truskovets. In fact, a very large number of people had arrived here and were placed before the war, a few days before the war because of the information that the war will soon break out. Some people had arrived, some of them already crossed the border to European countries. And when the war started, the mass evacuation began via trains and buses, cars. If you walk around on the streets, you will see how many cars are parked. Being 150 percent over capacity, this is what the mayor told us about how he deals with the problem. It does impose an excessive workload on us, but we understand our role and do understand that there are people who need our help because soldiers are fighting in the east, in the north, in the south of Ukraine to protect their families, and some of their family members are here in Truskovets, and our task here is welcome, place them and provide them with food, make sure they're as comfortable as possible. And this is territory of Ukraine, so we have to do everything we can to provide with everything we can. But not everyone who comes to Truskovets stays. Some people come and get some rest, and then make up their minds on what they will do next. They move on to another city with better accommodations or cross the border to Poland. Dan Skorbak, NTD News, Ukraine. Secretary of State Antony Blinken announced today that the U.S. is going to provide another $186 million of humanitarian aid for Ukraine. The money will support refugees fleeing the war and those internally displaced by the war. And veteran Fox News cameraman Pierre Zakshevsky has died after his vehicle was struck by incoming fire outside Kyiv, Ukraine on Monday. Fox News Media CEO Suzanne Scott made the announcement today. Fox News journalist Benjamin Hall was with Zakshevsky while news gathering and was also injured. Scott said Hall remains hospitalized. Zakshevsky is the second American journalist to be killed in Ukraine. Independent filmmaker and journalist Brent Renault was killed Sunday when Russian troops opened fire. And the Ukrainian president is acknowledging that joining NATO isn't realistic, but continues to call on NATO to impose a no-fly zone and supply more weapons. President Biden will visit Belgium next week to meet with NATO leaders and discuss the war. NTD's Allison Lee has the details. Recognize 
Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky spoke virtually to leaders of the UK-led Joint Expeditionary Force on Tuesday and discussed Ukraine's bid to join NATO. We've heard for years about open doors, but we've already heard that we won't be able to join it. It's the truth and it's necessary to admit it. I'm glad that our people have started understanding it and counting on themselves and our partners who help us. Zelensky criticizes NATO for not imposing a no-fly zone over Ukraine, and he continues to appeal to European nations for more support, especially fighter jets. We need to look for working guarantees for us, for our skies. We won't give up on it. We need jets, and I'll continue talking about it. Russia says it has captured a large number of weapons supplied by Western nations. The Russian Federation's armed forces captured a large number of Western-made weapons, among them javelin and anti-tank missiles, portable anti-tank grenade launchers and portable surface-to-air missiles. Meanwhile, the Ukrainian side claims they've destroyed close to 100 Russian helicopters, 80 fighter jets, hundreds of tanks and thousands of other pieces of hardware. The fourth round of talks between the two countries continued on Tuesday. Russia is reiterating its demand for Ukraine to stop its bid to join NATO. The goal of Ukraine joining NATO is in the Ukrainian constitution, so it should be, it should be dropped from there uh, first and foremost. Amid the fighting, leaders of three European Union countries are visiting Kyiv to show support for Ukraine. They are the prime ministers of the Czech Republic, Poland and Slovenia. And on March 24th, NATO leaders, including President Biden, will meet in Brussels for an extraordinary summit on the Russian invasion. Meanwhile, Russia is reacting to Western sanctions. President Vladimir Putin signed a law on Monday, allowing Russian airlines to seize and operate foreign-owned aircraft. Russia also says it has sanctioned Biden, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and other top officials of the Biden administration. Allison Lee, NTD News. Russia's issued sanctions that bar Biden administration officials from entering the country. The White House brushed off the sanctions, Press Secretary Jen Psaki saying Russia may have sanctioned President Biden's late father by omitting the suffix junior. And the White House is warning Congress of severe consequences if they don't quickly approve billions more in pandemic relief money. And on Capitol Hill, some lawmakers are pressing the Biden administration, asking why mask mandates were extended at a time when many states are lifting their masking requirements. And TD's Melina Weiskopf has more. At least for the next month, we will still have to wear masks on airplanes and federal transit. The government extended the mandate that was supposed to end in just a few days. Now some Republicans are voicing their criticisms. In restaurants across the land now, Without a mask, uh, they can go to shopping centers, they can go to malls, uh, everywhere but an airport. But according to data released by the C CDC, last Friday, 98% of Americans can now safely choose not to wear a, a mask indoors. It makes no sense to continue this. Senator Roger Wicker and others sent a letter to President Biden requesting the administration to end the mandate, while another group of lawmakers are suing the CDC, arguing that the agency lacked the authority to issue the mandate because Congress did not first approve it. Senator Ted Cruz today calling it a political theater. The American people should have the same mask rules that members of Congress had at the State of the Union address. Just two weeks ago, we saw 535 members of Congress sitting on the floor of the House. I don't think there were five masks among them. And the White House today warning that the government is running out of money to respond to the pandemic. Biden's called on Congress to pass billions more to make sure the government can continue developing and stockpiling vaccines, antiviral pills, masks, and free treatment and tests, especially for uninsured people. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says she aims for the House to pass some money this week, but it's unclear how much. And Senate Republicans are taking their shot to try to overturn this extended federal mask mandate, bringing to the floor a vote to overturn the mandate this week. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. Colorado has some of the loosest regulations on abortion. No limits on when the procedure can be done and no medical reason is necessary. But Democrats there have now passed a bill that would make getting an abortion a legal right. Other states are also headed in this direction, ahead of what could be a landmark ruling by the Supreme Court.
NTD's Miguel Moreno reports. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Over the weekend, Colorado lawmakers had a historic debate on an abortion rights bill. They debated for over 24 hours. But the Reproductive Health Equity Act survived, passing the House with a party-line vote on Monday. It's absolutely one of the most extreme bills that we've ever seen in the country. Republican Representative Dave Williams was part of that all-nighter at the Capitol. Abortions in Colorado are virtually unrestricted. The unborn child can be aborted at any time. But this bill would codify abortion rights. Williams told NTD that it could even give that right to minors. Right, so in Colorado, there is a parental notification law that is currently on the books. Um, with the passage of this bill, that jeopardizes um, that law and could allow minors, uh, children under 18 years of age, to seek abortions without actually having uh, their parents know about it. This bill will not impact the parental notification statutes that already exist in law. House Democrat Danea Esgar disagrees with Williams. We are protecting a woman's right to choose what is best for her between her and her medical provider when it comes to her health care. Why we're running this bill right now is because we are afraid of what could happen if we do not put this in statute today. Esgar is referring to Mississippi's abortion case at the Supreme Court. Its highly anticipated ruling could greenlight tighter restrictions on the procedure. In light of that possibility, New Jersey codified its right to abortion, and Vermont could do the same if voters give the proposal a pass later this year. Mario Diaz, the chief lawyer for Concerned Women for America, says the pressure is on. I think the, uh, the pro-choice, as they call themselves, pro-abortion side, is starting to feel the pressure of the inevitable Dobbs decision that is coming and really uh, the pressure of the American people waking up to their extreme policies. I think uh, people know that there should be limits uh, to abortion. Colorado's abortion bill is now headed to the Democrat majority Senate. Miguel Moreno, NTD News. Law enforcement on the East Coast had a seemingly successful start to the week. D.C., Philadelphia and New York all caught violent criminals on the run. Before the roundup, a warning. The following scenes are graphic. A suspected serial killer targeting homeless people is believed to have shot five individuals in Washington, D.C. and New York City this month. He's accused of shooting them while they were sleeping on the streets, killing two of them. I mean, he stood over him and, and shot him in his head uh, for no reason at all but being homeless. And so we will catch him. And law enforcement did catch the suspect early Tuesday. The D.C. Police Department says he is being interviewed at their homicide branch. In Philadelphia, police arrested Gary Cabana. He is accused of stabbing workers at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City on the weekend. The workers allegedly denied him entry. He responded by attacking them. A shocking attack took place in Yonkers, just north of New York City, on Friday. Suspect Tamil Esco allegedly followed an almost 70-year-old woman into her apartment building and started attacking her. He didn't stop when she was lying on the ground and reportedly punched her a total of 125 times. Yonkers police caught the suspect, who is now facing charges of attempted murder. Amazon is moving workers out of its office in downtown Seattle due to a wave of violent crime. The company joins a growing list of businesses in the area taking drastic steps to protect their employees and customers. NTD's Grace Coulter has the story. Amazon is temporarily relocating workers out of its downtown Seattle office due to a spike in violent crimes in the area. Roughly 1,800 Amazon employees are assigned to the office, located in the heart of Seattle on 3rd Avenue and Pine Street. An Amazon spokesman said in a statement to the Seattle Times Friday that the move was prompted by recent incidents near 3rd and Pine. Recent violent crimes in the area include the fatal shooting of a 15-year-old on March 2nd. Police said Monday the shooter is still at large. According to the Seattle Police Department, since February 21st, there have been at least three shootings, two stabbings and one carjacking in the area. Como News reporter Jonathan Cho captured this footage of police patrolling the area near Amazon's office after the company's announcement. 
Cho posted the videos to Twitter and wrote, even with Seattle Police Department on patrol, parts of 3rd Ave remain an open-air drug den and a bazaar of stolen merch. Downtown Seattle is turning into a bad episode of Cops. Cho has shared several other recent videos of the downtown area. Here you can see tents, trash and homeless people sleeping on the sidewalk. And Amazon isn't the only business taking drastic measures to protect their staff. Some are even shutting down. At the end of February, Poroshki Poroshki closed their location nearby at 3rd Ave and Pike Street because they said the area is no longer safe for employees. According to Cho, the McDonald's in downtown Seattle also closed the day after Poroshki Poroshki, citing safety concerns. He took this video of people doing drugs in the doorway of the shuttered McDonald's. Seattle Mayor Bruce Hurrell's office told Fox News he's working to make downtown safer, but added it may take time. Amazon says it will bring employees back to the downtown office when it's safe to do so. Grace Coulter, NTD News. Over the past week, three county clerks have been charged with tampering in connection with the 2020 election. Meanwhile, a growing number of election officials are resigning. How does this trend affect voters' confidence in the election process? NTD's Arlene Richards reports. Kathy Funk, a former Flint Township clerk in Michigan, was charged late last week with election tampering. Now a Genesee County election supervisor, Funk was accused of breaking the seal on a ballot container during the 2020 primary. But Funk isn't alone. Two Mesa County clerks in Colorado were indicted earlier last week on a number of charges, including voter machine tampering. According to the Heritage Foundation Election Fraud Database, there are 1,349 proven instances of voter fraud to date. Meanwhile, there is a growing trend of election officials resigning across the country, but some voters in New York City are not deterred. I will continue to vote. Um, I'm still going to vote. I always vote. It's my duty as an American citizen. One voter claims election fraud is not new. It's been going on for years, for ages. Some are divided on whether reports of fraud and resignations have any effect on voter confidence. I don't, I don't think it should affect anyone. It really does affect my confidence in officials. Especially if people don't have confidence in the voting system, they're not going to vote. And if people are tampering with it, then why does our vote even matter? Jeffrey Weiss, a national redistricting expert with 40 years of experience in voter rights, attributes the resignations to officials feeling threatened by false accusations and unproven stories about voter fraud after the 2020 election. But if stories are out there about fraud, about uh, machines being manipulated, about numbers being stuffed into the, uh, the ballot boxes, that's scary. It's According to Weiss, if election officials continue to leave, voters will not want to vote. With fewer votes, we have uh, fewer people making decisions on who gets elected, and we can have people that really don't, who don't have the support of the majority of, of the voters getting, getting elected to office through a minority vote. Han von Spakovsky, manager of the Election Law Reform Initiative at the Heritage Foundation, says public interest in election integrity did grow after the 2020 election, and the higher scrutiny is causing officials to leave. The public has finally started questioning a lot of local election officials about what they are doing and what they're not doing. He says voters won't lose confidence over resignations, but fraud is another story. When election officials are arrested for um, uh, misconduct, for fraud, for tampering with voting equipment, other things, that does affect the public confidence in election. In addition to ballot tampering, Funk was charged with misconduct in office. Both charges are felonies punishable by up to five years in prison. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. Up next, top New York City officials no longer have to disclose when they meet with lobbyists. The rules are changing and they can now have the meetings behind closed doors. And more details are out on the deep death of TV star Bob Saget. But a permanent injunction was granted on Monday to block the release of any more records. All that and more here on NTD News. New York City's mayor, Eric Adams, and his administration previously had to disclose when they met with lobbyists. Now the mayor has changed this rule and these meetings no longer have to be made public. 
Former New York Mayor Bill de Blasio implemented a rule that ordered officials in his administration to disclose when they met with lobbyists. Now, City Hall attorneys have allegedly sent out a memo to Eric Adams' staff changing that rule. Media outlet Politico obtained a copy of the memo. The memo reads, Mayor's office employees are not required to maintain or file any reports or documents in connection with their meetings with lobbyists. Lobbyists are professional advocates who work to influence political decisions. They usually get hired and paid by big corporations. But lobbyists are not allowed to pay politicians. According to OpenSecrets.org, the top lobbying industry nationwide is pharmaceuticals. In New York City alone, lobbying firms made over $100 million last year. Today, more details were released on the death of TV star Bob Saget, who was found dead in his Florida hotel room on January 9th. The medical examiner had concluded after the autopsy that Saget died from an accidental blow to the head, likely from a backwards fall. According to the report released today, fractures around Saget's eye sockets and bleeding around his brain were possibly caused by the comedian hitting something hard covered by something soft. Countertops, tables and nightstands in the hotel room were ruled out since those are all hard surfaces. The report listed the carpeted floor and padded headboard of the bed as two possible mechanisms of injury. Investigators called to the luxury hotel suite at the time of his death found no evidence of struggle, drugs, foul play, or signs that anyone else had been in Saget's suite during his stay. The comedian's family filed a lawsuit last month against the Orange County Sheriff and the medical examiner's office requesting that some records related to Saget's death investigation not be made public. A Florida judge granted the permanent injunction yesterday, blocking the release of photos, video, and other records. And as gas prices soar, both sides of the aisle are now calling for energy independence. But their proposals look drastically different. And TD's Iris Tau brings us the latest debate on Capitol Hill. The, the dangers of our dependence on foreign oil. Democrats are joining Republicans' call for American energy independence. It comes amid soaring gas prices and increased uncertainty facing the country's energy and national security. But their approaches are hardly the same. The long-term solution is that we continue a rapid and aggressive transition to renewable energy and cleaner sources of fuel. In a presser today, a group of Democratic representatives called on the Biden administration to move away from fossil fuels, which they say have been proven unreliable in turbulent times. Until we can shake off our reliance on fossil fuels altogether, Americans will be vulnerable to the kinds of price shocks and supply chain constraints that are hurting American families today. But one of them did admit that we do need to produce more oil to solve the current crisis. And so as pragmatists, as realists, we all recognize that right now to deal with that problem, we need supply to match demand. But some are going even further. The Congressional Progressive Caucus, which has nearly 100 lawmakers, is reportedly planning to urge President Biden this week to declare climate change a national emergency and to ban fossil fuel drilling on public lands. However, some Republicans, along with Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, are making the exact opposite call. Immediate action item is to increase our domestic oil and gas production on both federal and non-federal lands. They're urging the White House to restart new oil and gas leasing on federal lands. Meanwhile, the White House has blamed oil companies for not using enough drilling permits to produce more domestically. But some Republicans say it's the hostile environment created by the administration that's hindering these companies from producing more. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. Ahead of Starbucks' annual shareholders meeting tomorrow, the coffee giant is launching a huge initiative to go greener. It includes adding a charging network for electric cars. NTD's Phil Zoe has more from the Meatpacking District in New York City. Starbucks and Volvo Cars are teaming up, offering charging stations for electric cars at up to 15 coffee shops. 
is part of a pilot program spanning from the Starbucks headquarters in Seattle all the way to Denver, Colorado. Well, yeah, I mean, if everybody tomorrow bought an electric vehicle, there would be nowhere to charge them. I caught up with coffee drinker and musician Rick Bedrosian right outside of the Starbucks Reserve Roastery in New York City. I think they're a great idea. They just, I think they need to be phased in over a course of probably a few decades. By the end of this year, Starbucks will install as many as 60 of the Volvo-branded fast chargers. But Bajosian says there's a problem. If there's not enough charging stations, there can't be enough electric vehicles. But if there's you know, too many of one and not enough of another, they, have to, they both have to sort of expand at the same time, I think. Volvo car owners get to use the charging stations for free, while everyone else will have to pay a fee. Phil Zoe, NTD News, New York. Gas prices are still soaring across the U.S., and while the conflict in Ukraine is partly to blame, the impact is expected to stick around for a while, just as many Americans begin to plan their spring break road trips. Here are three tips to help you save money at the gas pump. A gallon of gas costs more than it ever has. On Monday, the average price for a gallon of gas was $4.32. That's higher than it was in 2008, when it was $4.11. We're at a point now at an all-time high. I remember what happened in 2008. People got out their bicycles and started walking places where possible. Although the U.S. barely uses Russian oil, Moscow's invasion of Ukraine is still a major factor. Russia's one of the world's biggest oil suppliers, and lower supply affects global prices. Americans need to go into conservation mode and cut our consumption to improve the situation. There's no other way around it. And with the conflict abroad intensifying, experts say price increases won't be stopping anytime soon. Expert Lauren Fix from Car Coach Reports has three tips to help you save money. Number one, if you're in park, turn it off. Don't leave your car running, not even to warm it up. I know we typically think it's only a couple pennies to sit in the drive-through, park your vehicle and go inside. That will save you the most fuel. Number two, travel light. Get that heavy junk out of the back. Moving additional weight, like bike racks and gear, requires more fuel. And number three, keep your car in good shape. That means getting in the habit of checking your tire pressure and keeping up with maintenance. Anytime an engine's not maintained properly, that means something's not functioning properly. So you're not gonna get the best fuel economy when a pump or a hose isn't working or a belt or a bushing or bearing, something that's causing that vehicle to struggle. Inflation is at an all-time high and still increasing. But J.P. Morgan says there's one group of people that may be shielded from some of its impact. It's a group that may surprise you. NTD's Evelyn Lee with experts' opinions. The Russia-Ukraine conflict is driving prices even higher. But retirees might not feel the brunt as much. That's according to a report from J.P. Morgan. But Julio Gonzalez, the CEO and founder of a tax firm, finds the surprising. He says typically those are the ones hardest hit by inflation. The people that are suffering the most, the people on fixed incomes, I think that that's going to be difficult to help them in the short term. But J.P. Morgan found that spending habits change during the golden years. The basket of goods retirees buy changes and that could reduce the impact of inflation. For example, gas prices have spiked, but older households tend to spend less on transportation. And some retirees may have the flexibility to buy less gas by combining trips or sharing rides. But Dana Artzer, a retirement advisor, says that they have other expenses. The very small, minute Social Security increase they get and then Medicare takes it back because they give them a Medicare increase on their premium and their deductible. Um, not to mention that the drug prices are increasing. It's just, it's terrible. She says she talks to people on a daily basis who have money concerns. J.P. Morgan acknowledges that older Americans face rising health care costs, but says retirees tend to spend less in other categories. But both Gonzalez and Arthur disagree. Arthur says retirees still want to go out and enjoy life. And Gonzalez thinks only a minority have fairly fixed expenses. Those are typically the ones who have already paid off mortgages and cars and live modestly. I don't think most people are shielded from it because ultimately utility costs are still going up, food prices are still going up, gas is still going up. So the only way they're shielded really is from less consumption. Cutting down on consumption is one way retirees can deal with inflation. Another is taking a job to boost income. 
Artser says she suggests looking at money-saving alternatives like tax-deferred products before retirement. Evelyn Lee, NTD News. Coming up, more drugs are smuggled into the U.S. Authorities arrested a man suspected of smuggling meth and fentanyl across California's southern border. And a small group in Southern California held an event for Detransition Day. They welcome people out of the transsexual movement who say they regret decisions made with their bodies. Border Patrol agents recently arrested a U.S. citizen at an immigration checkpoint. CBP said he tried to smuggle nearly $300,000 worth of illicit narcotics. U.S. Border Patrol agents arrested a 28-year-old man suspected of smuggling over 60 pounds of methamphetamine and about 5 pounds of fentanyl near Salton City, California, according to an announcement on Monday. The unidentified man is a U.S. citizen. The drug bust occurred at the Highway 86 checkpoint at about 3.45 a.m. on March 11th. A canine team helped agents discover the narcotics concealed in the floorboard area of a car during inspection. They were in 40 packages of meth and 7 packages of fentanyl pills. California Senator Melissa Melendez praised the efforts of Border Patrol agents to stop the illicit drugs from hitting the streets in California. She told the Epic Times that the amount of fentanyl seized is enough to kill almost 1.2 million people. Melendez accused President Joe Biden and Governor Gavin Newsom of failing to properly address drug trafficking at the southern border. Riverside County District Attorney Michael Hestron said the Border Patrol isn't receiving enough support from the federal government to deal with fentanyl trafficking. They're not getting the resources they need. It's coming in in waves and they can only do what they can do. And so I would say the federal government has to focus on this problem and come up with a plan to stop the flow of fentanyl from coming across the southern border. The suspect, the vehicle, and narcotics were turned over to the Drug Enforcement Administration. Lawmakers voted for a bill to lift an enrollment cap on UC Berkeley. A recent court ruling would have denied about 3,000 students entry into the school after they had already received acceptance letters. But hours later, the governor signed the legislation. Governor Gavin Newsom signed SB 118 on Monday to ensure that the incoming class of UC Berkeley students will be able to enroll in campus this fall. In a statement, Newsom said he's grateful for the quick response and it sends a clear signal that California won't let lawsuits get in the way of the education and dreams of thousands of students, our future leaders and innovators. The law ensures that student enrollment at a college campus is not singled out as a project under the California Environmental Quality Act, while preserving requirements that campus long-range development plans are comprehensively reviewed for environmental impacts. Newsom's signature overrides a ruling from the California Supreme Court. The court ordered UC Berkeley to freeze its enrollment for the upcoming academic year on March 3rd. The ruling was in favor of a residence group called Save Berkeley Neighborhoods. The group sued the university for increasing student enrollment without addressing the impacts on housing, homelessness, traffic, and noise. In response to the signing, the group said UC Berkeley does not have the capacity to handle more students. Over 10% of current Berkeley students are homeless, and 15% are food insecure. Newsom's California Blueprint plans to expand on higher education, which includes increasing California resident undergraduate enrollment in the UC system by more than 7,000 and in the CSU system by over 14,000 during a three-year period. The second annual Detransition Awareness Day was held in Los Angeles over the weekend. The group hopes to bring awareness to people feeling regret about modifying their bodies in hopes of switching genders. Outside of the JW Marriott Hotel in a shopping area of downtown Los Angeles, a small group of protesters gathered to hold the second annual Detransition Awareness Day. Well, we're here because today is the Detrans Awareness Day. March 12th, is, this is the second annual Detrans, Detrans Awareness Day where we honor people who have detransitioned um, for whom uh, medical transition was not successful. Um, they're a very underrepresented group. Their voice has pretty much been silenced. People who have detransitioned are those who've left the transsexual movement. 
Detransitioners previously pursued gender reassignment through either hormones or surgery and are now hoping to return to their original selves. The group protested a fundraiser held by the Human Rights Campaign, or HRC. HRC's website says it is fighting for LGBTQ equality. The Human Rights Campaign has pledged to represent all people under the LGBTQ um, umbrella, and it seems a little odd that since a lot of detransitioners are also LGBTQ, that they would deny the uh, ability for us to acknowledge them. So we're here to remind them that they exist. A key component to the transitioning process are drugs known as puberty blockers. They are legal in the state of California and can be administered to children as young as 13 years old with parent permission. So when I was 12, I kind of realized something wasn't wasn't right. Um, I knew I was autistic, but I felt like there was there was more to it than that. And I thought, you know, this was it. I thought this was it. But um, I mean, I, I started testosterone when I was on my 18th birthday, actually on my birthday. Um, and then when I um, decided to detransition, I was like, oh, God, I made a mistake. I messed up. I messed up. She found a community of detransitioners online. Similar feelings of regret were common among the group. A lot of the gender ideology is being pushed so hard that like anyone that speaks against it is being labeled transphobic or TERF, which stands for trans exclusionary radical feminist. For those of you who don't know, um, I think it's just fear. I think we're I think a lot of us are just scared. And I just want to I just want people to know that I'm, I'm not scared. It's not that it's uncommon. I think people are just afraid to speak out because there's so much backlash. Maybe it starts a conversation and people are aware of people like Ellie and others who uh, it's not about being anti-trans. LaRue said she's concerned with the large increase in minors stating they are transgender. She hopes to depoliticize the issue and make it about health and human rights. Coming up, a decades-long alliance is getting stronger in the Indo-Pacific. Troops from Japan and the U.S. have come together in the region for a week of joint drills. And a Russian court finds the woman who denounced the Russian invasion of Ukraine during a live news broadcast. She said she went through 14 hours of interrogation after the incident. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. Troops from the U.S. and Japan are training together this week as part of a joint military drill in the Indo-Pacific. The exercise looks to boost their alliance and counter the Chinese Communist regime's assertiveness in the region. NTD's Tiffany Meyer has more with China in Focus. As Russia's invasion in Ukraine is garnering the world's attention, the countries in the Indo-Pacific region are strengthening their ties. Combating the threat from the Chinese Communist regime, the U.S. and Japan are coming closer militarily. Amphibious Japanese troops and U.S. Marines are getting some joint exercise. On Tuesday, they practice airborne landing assaults together for the first time. The drills mark a sign of deepening military cooperation between Japan and the United States. The drills involve 400 Japanese troops and 600 from U.S. Marines. It's part of a three-week exercise held in Japan. Japan is revising a decades-old national security strategy amid heightened threat concerns over China's growing military assertiveness. That upgrade to defense policy guidelines is expected to make the country take a more active role alongside Washington in protecting regional security. The joint drills also come as Russia's invasion of Ukraine brings fresh security concerns to East Asia, where China is putting pressure on Taiwan. China claims Taiwan as its own territory and has never ruled out the possibility of trying to take Taiwan by force, even though Taiwan has its own constitution and democratically elected president. Due to its close proximity to Taiwan, Japan is on high alert because of Beijing's growing assertiveness in the region. Most of the arms sales in the last five years were going to countries in the Indo-Pacific region, and the biggest arms export country is the U.S. This, according to new research from the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. With the war in Ukraine and tensions in the Indo-Pacific region, arms sales have seen a boost in some regions. 
For one, Europe is importing more weapons. While some major countries in the Indo-Pacific region, like India, Australia and Japan, have ramped up arms buys in the last five years. The research examines weapon sales during two five-year periods. It compares purchase numbers from 2017 to 2021 to those made from 2012 to 2016. Comparing the last five years to the five years before that, international transfers of major arms shrank 5% globally, but imports to European countries increased 19%, the biggest growth of any world region. Stockholm Peace Institute researcher Peter Weizmann explains the severe deterioration in relations between most European states and Russia was an important driver of growth in European arms imports. Topping the list, Britain, Norway and the Netherlands were Europe's biggest arms importers. Surprisingly, Ukraine's imports were very limited, despite rising tensions with Russia in recent years. The Indo-Pacific remains the world's largest weapons import region. More than two-fifths of global transfers made in the years from 2017 to 2021 were made there. What's more, six of the ten top importers on that list are located in the region. India and Australia lead the charge, and both have ongoing border disputes or trade conflicts with China. Notably, the Chinese Communist regime takes third place. South Korea and Japan also make the top six. Both are taking a harder stance against Beijing's aggression and expansion in the region. Weizmann added that tensions between China and many states in Asia and Oceania are the main driver of arms imports in the region. On the other end of those weapon sales, the United States remained the world's biggest arms exporter, growing its market share to 39% from 32%. A Russian woman is fined 30,000 rubles for denouncing the invasion of Ukraine during a live broadcast. That comes out to about $280. The United Nations Human Rights Office previously called on Russian authorities to protect the protesters' right to free speech. Here's more. A Russian court found Marina Ovsyanikova, an employee at Channel One, guilty of breaking protest laws. It wasn't immediately clear if she could also face other, more serious charges. The woman interrupted a live Russian evening news program on state-controlled Channel One on Monday, holding up a sign behind the studio presenter and shouting slogans denouncing the war in Ukraine. She could be seen and heard for several seconds before the channel switched to a different report. She asked Russians not to be taken in by state propaganda. It was my own anti-war decision. I made this decision by myself, and I don't like Russia starting this invasion, and it was really terrible. Her message drew praise from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, but was swiftly rebuffed in Moscow. A Kremlin spokesperson denounced Ovsyanikova's actions as hooliganism. After the court hearing, Ovsyanikova told reporters she was exhausted. These were uneasy days of my life because I spent two days without sleep. The interrogation lasted for more than 14 hours. I was not allowed to contact my relatives or provided with any judicial help. I was in a rather tough situation. Her protest had stirred fears among her sympathizers that she could be prosecuted under new legislation that carries a jail term of up to 15 years. The law, adopted eight days after the invasion of Ukraine, makes public actions aimed at discrediting Russia's army illegal. It also bans the spread of deliberately false information about the use of Russia's armed forces. Earlier in the day, a UN human rights spokesperson said Russian authorities should not punish the woman for speaking out. Um, we would urge uh, the authorities to ensure that she does not face any reprisals uh, for exercising her right to freedom of expression. She added that 15,000 people have been arrested for protesting against the war in Ukraine. The UK and the European Union yet again issue new sanctions against Russia. The measures target hundreds of Russian businessmen, people close to President Putin and senior defense officials. A number of imports from Russia, including metals, wood and beverages such as vodka, will now face additional tariffs of over 35 of 35 percent on top of any existing duties. EU sanctions will hit Russia's oil majors Rosneft, Transneft and Gazprom, but EU members will still be able to buy oil and gas from them. There will also be a total ban on transactions with some Russian state-owned enterprises 
linked to the Kremlin's military-industrial complex. The EU Commission said the ban on Russian steel imports is estimated to affect nearly £3 billion worth of products. EU companies will also no longer be allowed to export luxury goods worth more than £250, including jewellery, as well as cars costing more than £42,000. The sanctions will also freeze the assets of business leaders who support the Russian state, including Chelsea football club owner Roman Abramovich. Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson said the West made a terrible mistake with Crimea and that now the West must end its dependence on Russian energy. It comes as he prepares to travel to Saudi Arabia to push them to increase their oil and gas production. NTD's Malcolm Hudson brings us more. In an article published in The Telegraph, Prime Minister Boris Johnson called upon the West to end its addiction to the Russian energy. He said Western leaders made a terrible mistake letting Putin get away with annexing Crimea in 2014 and that the West then became more dependent on Russian power sources than ever before. This addiction, Johnson says, emboldened Putin to bomb civilians while profiting from soaring energy prices. Stating that Russia produces virtually nothing else that the rest of the world wants to buy, Johnson argued, if the world can end its dependence on Russian oil and gas, we can starve him of cash, destroy his strategy, and cut him down to size. Now Johnson is preparing to meet the Saudi Crown Prince for talks over oil and gas. It would reduce the West's reliance on Russia. But Foreign Office Minister James Cleverly said he doesn't know whether Saudi Arabia has condemned Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. Cleverly says Johnson will bring this up during his visit to Saudi Arabia. The talks are going on despite Saudi Arabia's history of human rights abuses and use of the death penalty. But Cleverly says the Prime Minister is right to seek alternatives to Russian energy and to stop funding Russia's war with Ukraine. Johnson also announced he will create a British energy security strategy later this month. He said it will set out how the UK will become more self-sufficient and no longer at the mercy of bullies like Putin. At the heart of it will be green energy such as North Sea wind turbines, tidal power and geothermal energy, what he says is the quickest and easiest route to energy independence. Johnson went on to criticise the Labour government's 1997 manifesto that shunned nuclear power, saying, It is time to reverse that historic mistake with a strategy that includes small modular reactors as well as the larger power stations. Under the new strategy, nuclear power would form the baseload of British energy. Johnson said the new strategy would stem the addiction to Russian energy and support the cause for freedom. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News, London. In the UK, COVID-19 tests and passenger forms will be scrapped for both vaccinated and unvaccinated travellers starting this Friday. That's an end to two years of travel restrictions. British Transport Tech Secretary Grant Shapps made the announcement to lawmakers. This Friday, there will be no testing or quarantine requirements for any passengers arriving into the UK regardless of their vaccination status. And we will go further. I've heard the calls from passengers, from airlines, from members across the House that the passenger locator form is a burden which has simply outlived its usefulness. Following the news, Heathrow Airport said it would drop the requirement for passengers to wear masks. The Health Secretary said the Health Department will continue to monitor new variants and keep a reserve of measures if needed. Coming up, the Eiffel Tower grows a little bit taller after engineers hoisted a new communications antenna onto the top of France's most iconic landmark. And scientists in the UK are developing a global standard for retraining retired racehorses into therapy horses. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. The Eiffel Tower grew by 20 feet when engineers hoisted a new communications antenna onto the very top of France's most iconic landmark. Here's more. Tourists watched from the Trocadero Esplanade as the new digital radio antenna was flown up by helicopter. 
the head of the company that runs the Eiffel Tower said that scientific progress was an integral part of the 132-year history of the tower, known locally as the Iron Lady. From the invention of the radio uh, at the beginning of the early 20th century and right now, uh, decades after decades, the Eiffel Tower has been a partner for all the, the radio technology and so this morning we, we are again. The Eiffel Tower was only 1,063 feet tall when it was inaugurated in 1889. Following this latest addition, the tower now stands at 1,083 feet. What happens to a racehorse when it stops competing? Scientists in the UK are developing a global standard for retraining retired racehorses into therapy horses. Rosanna Philpot reports. What happens to a horse when it stops racing? While some go on to eventing and pleasure riding, for others, the outlook can be bleak. In Britain, however, a new idea is taking hold to retrain retired racehorses into therapy horses. Racehorses, when they finish their racing careers, and they can finish as young as sort of three or four years old, they really don't want to be just standing around in fields for the next 20, 30 years. And they're so versatile that there's, I really believe there's a job for 99% of them. Scientists are working with charity Racing to Relate to develop an evidence-based standard for selecting and training horses as they transition from life on the race course to equine-assisted therapy. This guy is called Boma Green. And how old? He's only four years old, so he's a, a definite classic of who needs to find a new home. You're going from elite athlete into sort of, you know, a lower level, either athletic or, you know, sort of um, sedentary sort of life. You'd be surprised the number of thoroughbreds don't know what to do when you stand them in a field, so they have to get used to that thing too. Who will benefit from therapy horses? Veterans, disabled children, as well as those struggling with mental health issues. I think there's almost a sixth sense with the horse. People needing therapy, whether that's mental health or physical disabilities, there seems to be sort of something that gels between a horse and a human. This isn't necessarily a job for every horse, though. The team is devising a series of tests to assess a thoroughbred's suitability, like this umbrella test. It's a way of getting to know the horse and how they react in different situations. So we're trying to capture that in the test that we're bringing together. So we've got how they react to an umbrella opening suddenly in front of them, to how they get over that, that fright. Are they interested afterwards? Do they back away? We've also got how they react to something they've never seen before and also how they react to different surfaces underfoot. The three-year study aims to provide a global standard for the racing industry, a toolkit, so to say, for retraining racehorses. Sir Mark Prescott has been training horses for over 45 years and has thousands of winners to his name. A horse's early training, he says, is critical for their long-term welfare. How well behaved, how kind, how biddable a horse is affects greatly his life after racing. And the greatest gift that any of us trainers can give a horse is to break him in properly. The horse is unique in that he doesn't fall into either category. He's not the lion who you can never quite trust. And he's not the dog that will love you regardless. Somewhere in between is this wild spirit which symbiotically can be brought together and that's their fascination. My personal hope from this project is really demonstrate to people like they can have amazing second careers. They don't have to go on and be a top-level dressage horse or a top-level eventer, which is often what people sort of perceive that they're going on to high-level competition. They can be someone's leisure ride. They can be used in this sort of support service. So, yeah, that's my big thing that I want to get across, really. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.